Tonight I'd like to talk about understanding the continuum of self-indulgence and self-kindness. I think the title needs a little work. (laughs) 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 Sounds a little bit like a PhD thesis. So where did a talk like this come from? (laughs) It um, came from the fact that Narayan and I often emphasize self-kindness in one's practice to a large extent. And tonight I will, uh, further on in the talk, explain why that is so, so very important. It's really the foundation on which the practice moves. But some people can misinterpret self-kindness for kind of an excuse to be lackadaisical, sort of a self-indulgence, a basic lack of effort. And so I think these two are important to explore and to understand what we mean by self kindness and what we mean by self-indulgence. Someone once said that laziness is sadness of the spirit. And that resonated with me, kind of a lethargy of our soul, of our core. And I think that when I think about what it means to be lazy and not put forth the effort to be self-indulgent, means that I'm steady in a kind of comfortable relationship and I don't want to disturb it. I don't want to force myself to the edge, but rather lay back and sort of wallow in the pleasantness of what environment I have created. It, in some ways, is a lack of commitment, a lack of totality of spirit, sort of a holding back and resting. And I think the Dharma practice, Dharma in general, really requires more from us than that. If we put forth partial effort, we get partial results. But that's only partial freedom. And partial freedom is not complete satisfactory. It's not completely satisfactory. So I'd like to just mention some of the areas in which that lackadaisical spirit can enter into our practice. It's your commitment to doing fully the walking during the walking periods. And now you can self-evaluate yourself as I mention (laughs) these. Sometimes you see people heading to their dormitory space to do walking practice between their bed and their sink, I'm sure. (laughs) It's what you do during mealtime. Are you using it as a form, as Narayan mentioned today, as a continuation of the form of expression or as a chance to sort of fill ourselves with a pleasant time, overeat, forget about that meditation stuff, 
and really hit it where we want to. Let's just look and see where we are in that particular continuum. It's how quickly we seek the refuge of sleep. Is it long before we are tired? Perhaps we haven't been here long enough to answer that one. But if we're not tired, then is there some willingness to extend the day? Or have we had enough and want to go straight to bed? How do we handle distractions like reading or finding that moment when we can whisper to our friend or other distractions? How do we handle our willingness to be silent together and to hold ourselves to the course of this meditation? How about, are you willing to give up the pleasurable thoughts and return to the breath? How willing are we to do that? Or how much do we bathe in the pleasure and pursuit of just thinking, which seems much more interesting to us than the boredom or seemingly boredom of the breath? How do we work with pain? Are we lazy in our willingness to even introduce the topic to our awareness, to our attention? Do we distract ourselves or very quickly shuffle our position long before we're really in any degree of stress or distress in relationship to the pain? And one that I've noticed is how do you, how straight do you sit in your cushion and chair? Is it kind of settling back and letting the back of the chair rest with you so that you're sort of there but not really there? Present but partially lying back and letting the support of the chair take care of that posture. Is there a willingness to be straight and attentive, full-hearted even in our posture? You see, you can go through every act that we do all day long and bring this continuum of self-indulgence or self-kindness into it. Not just in those that I mentioned. Because there's an opportunity to look at every act or every task in terms of that continuum. It's not so much that the continuum is a particular behavior, but rather, rather it's a relationship to that behavior. Anything can be self-indulgent. I had a yogi who I knew, it was the same group of yogis, I was having a group and one, not in this retreat, but another retreat, and one of them who I, whom I knew was very uh, hard-hearted person said to me that uh, she stayed up very late at night and she forced herself to get up the next day very early and she was doing this with some sense of pride and I said, well, that's, that's very interesting, but that's not meditation. And in the same group, another person said, well, they had uh, decided to sleep in in that morning and 
uh, not really, or to, to be self-kind to themselves. And I knew that that person had a tendency towards self-indulgence. I said, well, that's very interesting, but that's not meditation. You see, it's not what we do, but how we do it. The whole process of meditation deals with the relationship to our task, not what that task is. And many of us early on feel that the form and expression of sitting and walking is the meditation. And if we don't do it, somehow we're negligent in our task. And what we're feeding to you and what the message we're trying to give to you all along the way here is that regardless of the form or expression, it's the quality of your attention, the quality of your presence, the quality of your willingness to put yourself forth straightforward, totally, 100%. And to acknowledge when we can't, and that's meditation. Not to pretend or to put an image forth, but to acknowledge it. Because we're not always up to that 100%. Certainly not. But to admit that to ourselves, to look at that. But many of us fall back in that half-hearted response because we have some sense of caution or self-doubt in relationship to it. We err with our caution. It's a lack of trust in ourselves. The way we get out of that is only putting forth a half-spirited effort, a half-attempt to wake up, and sort of a, a, a lounging in the thinking and allowing ourselves to move off in that direction. We don't have confidence in taking refuge in the Buddha. We don't have confidence in the very potential that is your birthright because you are alive. We don't believe those words. We have been misfed and lied to in so many different aspects of our lives. We've been sold a bill of goods in virtually every form of the market economy. And here's another attempt to sell me some other goods. And perhaps it's the only thing we've heard in life that actually is true to spirit and to form 100%. And we can't handle that. We don't know what to do with that. So we fall back in receiving the truth with our old strategies of avoidance, of deterrence, of a lack of trust and honesty. We're like a cat that sniffs its food but never takes the bite. And to come out of those patterns, so we doodle away our lives and the very and the one opportunity we may have very precious and never realizing that the patterns of our lifestyle are pushing us are interpreting this truth and molding this truth and distorting this truth and somehow we need to come to terms with that 
because of our fear of failure, we fall back into safety patterns. So this is self-indulgence, the self which is unable or unwilling to commit. This stays comfortably within pleasure, within the known and the secure. But now we come to self-kindness. Love is something entirely different because self-kindness comes out of love. It's an attempt by the ego to offer love to the self. Not complete and total love, no. But it's an attempt. It's the raising up out of the ashes of our self-indulgence and making a very, very noble attempt to establish some sanity in our lives. Because it's not until we have come to the end of our pain, of our willingness to tolerate our self-abuse, that we will look towards self-kindness. We have to be pushed. We have to be pushed back and back. And many of our lives show the scarring of how long we have stayed and dwelled within that pain. And now we find ourselves here. And many of us use the same strategies of self-dislike to enhance and to grab and to hold on to this method as well. We use the practice against ourselves. We use it to punish ourselves or to do penance for a life in which we feel there is enormous self-blame. And we find ourselves often seeking out methods that reinforce that self-dislike. We put ourselves in front of the Zen stick a thousand times to be beaten until we feel noble enough to reach out. This is a hard talk, but I don't have a lot of time with you. I need to come in quickly and to introduce something that can practically or possibly change the way you do practice. There are many ways in Buddhism to practice skillful means, a way to introduce self-kindness into our lives. And metta has been embraced very exuberantly by many yogis. And I think it's because finally there's a breath of relief. Finally we're mature enough as a sangha to understand the value of self-kindness. I think that's a maturity. I think that's a growth. And so we learn to shower ourselves with phrases and feelings of self-worth. May I be happy. God, don't you deserve that? Where in the corner of your consciousness can you possibly be crouching that you can't see that you deserve that? May you be happy. May you be 
safe. Just to feel that, the power of those words. May I feel safe. May I trust. Already, the ennobling effect of those words begin to stir our hearts, for our hearts know and rest in that assurance. They know those words. They know that something is happening within those words. We are attempting to substitute one pattern of conditioning for another in this process of metta. We are attempting to take that sense of self-abuse and to move it out, to move it to give it some space by bringing in the counterbalancing condition. May I be happy. And this is why we emphasize with such degree of urgency, self-kindness. We have to start with self-kindness in this business especially in this culture, because we have not learned it throughout our history. Nothing in Dharma practice unfolds until there is self-respect. Selflessness is just a concept that cannot even be ascertained or even approached until there is self-respect. And so we bring that metta in. But metta is not just something we do to ourselves. It's how we hold our inward world. Metta is the environment, is the way that we embrace what we receive. It's the way we embrace the entire range of mental activity within us. And we're up against an enormous confrontation in this practice when the very emotions that we most fear, including fear itself, including rage, begins to surface as it will. How do we hold something like that? How can that possibly be a part of me and for me to still be happy? How can I allow even the rage that I've seen my parents pour on me, how can I allow that rage within myself and still be happy? And yet it's only through embracing and allowing that rage that we will ever be happy. Happiness depends upon our willingness to hold and to allow. And so metta, the ability to hold that condition, the ability to allow that condition into our consciousness, is an act in a movement towards freedom. Now we've come a long way from self-indulgence. We're no longer talking about a lackadaisical spirit, a half-hearted approach, but rather one who's intensely concerned with healing with being whole and being free. They've been down, we've been down three times in the water, and this time, by God, I'm going to 
stay afloat. And I'm not going to do it with one arm, treading. I'm going to do it with my whole body and will. And so self-kindness comes in. And all of us have been in situations in which we have stayed too long, in which those situations have no longer fed us. Many years ago, I was a monk in Burma. And the particular way that I was interpreting the Burmese method was really a self-harshness. And I found myself, because of the particular temperament I have, as well as the number of years of practice I was doing and how I was doing it, finding myself getting more and more brittle within that practice. It was not a problem with the practice. It was a problem with my relationship to it. Let me make that very clear. And as I stayed and overstayed, because I felt that real freedom, I would burst through this thing called self and come out the other side. And I had to force myself because it was the only strategy I knew was to ram myself right through. And so effort became my method, but it was the effort of self-abuse. And so in I would go and harder and, and finally it just broke me. It just broke me. I couldn't do it anymore. And then I went to Thailand. And I said, okay, I'm clearing everything out now. And I just started making the practice my own. And I didn't want anybody watching me because in Burma there was actually somebody that followed me everywhere I went to make sure that the Westerners, because we were new in the country, were behaving And that sort of inward watching really becomes a problem. So I went to a country in which nobody was watching me. And I could do anything I wanted to. I could quit, but I didn't quit. I could become completely lackadaisical and self-indulgent and never do anything but hang out. But I didn't. Because in that absence of watching, in that absence of pressure, my heart just flourished. And I just took the practice apart and I said, okay, everything's got to make sense to me. I don't want to hear anybody else giving me Dharma talks anymore. I don't want any more of that noise in my mind. I want to know for myself what's going on. And you look at each and every aspect of what people have said to you your whole life. And unless it makes sense right there as a strategy, it was no good for me whatsoever. I don't want any part of it. You see, I think that's the spirit of the refuge of the Buddha. I think that's the spirit of real self-kindness. Because you're not dumping on yourself any longer. It flows out, doesn't flow in. It's not a self-pressured. It's a pressure of, of excitement and vitality of moving out with interest, of wanting to become more alive, more connected, 
wanting to be fed, not beaten. I remember, uh, just as an aside, I remember at one point as a monk, uh, there were areas in which I was a little lackadaisical, and one of them was in washing my robes. And I would, you, you only have two sets of robes, so I would wake up in the morning and smell my robes. And Since I couldn't smell much, I figured that they were okay to continue to wear. It was, a, it was quite a... It was quite a task to what you had to heat water with a wooden you had to build a fire and heat water you know the whole thing it wasn't like you could put them in a washing machine and um, so this particular time I would I knew it started to smell a little bit but I didn't think it was so bad so I <laughs> continued to wear but I noticed every day that when we would go on alms round the people who were behind me got more further and further <laughs> Away, away from me. And they started calling me Mahakasapa. Mahakasapa was the Buddhist, Buddhist, in a, a Buddhist disciple who was foremost in ascetic practices. And he, it was said that he uh, would do things like uh, stay up all night, never um, sit, uh, sleep lying down, and wouldn't wash his robes. And <laughs> so there was a moment there when my lackadaisical spirit really did start having an effect in terms of of uh, other monks and I you and there was a but there's something that uh, resonates with you when you start seeing that because there there nothing everything has to be brought in line in this practice there can't be any stray pieces and you can't be just lack you can't be total 100% spirited for your own salvation and leave everybody behind. You have to wash your robes. And I think that was a lesson for me in, in community, in Sangha. That this practice, in its truest form, has each of us connected in a way that is not self-centered. but interconnected. So, in Buddhism we move away from that self, just like, towards self-understanding. Self-kindness is the first willingness to understand oneself. It's the intimation that something is going on that is much deeper and more profound than merely following the history of our self-abuse. And it's working with pain in a different way. In my first retreat that I ever did, for any length of time, it was a three-week retreat. And all we did was sit. There was no walking. And I was absolutely new to this particular form and I sat down with a group of people about this number and the youngest students sit way in the back and the more experienced students sit way in the front and you took vow hours and the first vow hour you were to sit there without moving 
and then the bell would ring, and if you chose, you could get up. But if you didn't, you would then have to sit for the second vow hour. And there were three vow hours consecutively. Now, being a young man of considerable fortitude and macho spirit, some after the first vow hour, I was hurting a little bit, but no one in front of me, which meant the more senior people, were getting up. Some of the people in the back did, but I didn't know about this relationship with experience and forward sitting. So I was thinking, well, hardly anybody's moving. I'm going to sit here. And then the bell rang, and the second hour began. This is my first meditation retreat. This is, for those of you who are brand new, this is it, right? So then the second, at, at the end of the second hours, at the second hour, sweat was pouring down my face. My pants were wet because I was in so much pain. The bell rang. I looked up and nobody moved. Oh no. And into my third vow hour, tears streaming down my face. I, I can't remember having a single part of my clothing that wasn't saturated. And I was just struggling just like this the whole time. <laughs> that was my meditation. <laughs> what happened in subsequent retreats was that in the, me, the moment I felt any discomfort at all, I said, oh my God, it's coming back again. I'm going to have that same pain. I had conditioned in fear through that hardness of heart, through that hardness of character, I condi- in my ambition, in that striving. I had conditioned fear into my practice. And it took me years. Changing teachers was one of the things that was most helpful. <laughs> but it took me years to understand a new relationship to pain. A new relationship that didn't involve recoiling in fear. That actually involved the very basis of metta. Not may my pain be comfortable and pleasant, but may I feel my pain, may I be alive to my pain, may I be present to my pain. The way I held pain became the metta. It became the very substance and way I dealt with all unpleasant situations. And I offer that to you. Don't sit three vow hours. Bring some real self-kindness into this practice. Don't find yourself tipping too far into that tendency of self-abuse. It serves no purpose. I don't like absolutes in this business, but this is one I don't think it serves any, well, I hedged a little. It doesn't serve any purpose at all. Striving, ambition, force. It's just following what we think about ourselves. It's just in line with that same sense of self-image that we have. We can't believe that this person who we have no openness to at all, meaning me, 
meaning myself, could possibly be enlightened. They have to change. They have to become something. They have to grope and crawl on their hands and knees. And yet it's here, in the midst of turmoil. It is here. only here and now not after prolonged penance and at some point in this amazingly wondrous journey it's not that we have to strive towards self-acceptance or towards self-indulgence because any movement towards the one or the other is more of a conceptual image that we are putting on ourselves. Now we have come very far in this process because the forced metta of may I be happy opens to the environment of metta, opens to the foundation on which everything is received in a natural and normal way. In which there isn't any more ambition, it's just what is and is received because it is just there. I don't have to push to make what's there into anything different. I don't have to distort or look away. It is there and it is sufficient in and of itself. And so metta has then become integrated. Self-kindness has become one with one's being. There is no movement away from what is in any way, shape, or form. There is no need to rehearse self-acceptance. That was a strategy and a skillful means that led to my being able to even approach self-acceptance to this degree. It was the intimation of selflessness in the beginning, but it has to be let go of. Even that has to be let go of. And now I'm no longer pushing towards self-acceptance, nor am I revolting away from self-hatred, nor am I indulging in self at all. I've seen the limitations of creating any kind of movement that creates a different sense of self, regardless if it's a kind sense of self or a disliked sense of self. We feel that self-deprivation is somehow more humbling than self-excess that self-negation is more nobling than vanity. But both of those are vanity. And it's in the nature of self itself that there is inherent freedom. I have to add nothing to it. I don't have to like it any more or dislike it any less. And that is the revelation that comes after we have fought our way and struggled our way through eons of self-torture. Why not come to that now? Why not arrive here now, this weekend? Why not come into this room now, no longer willing to pursue and be compulsed by our history 
of self-abuse. Because that's what we're running on. We're just running on what we feel about ourselves from our past. And we have to let go of that. Put that aside. Put it down. Because it can make your Dharma practice long and treacherous. Laborious and difficult. And yet we can come here. And there is natural affection. Not artificially induced, no longer skillful means, but true interconnectedness. Based on truth, what is right now, here, And then the heart explodes in joy. Nowhere to go, no self to berate. No one to build up. No one to protect or And if someone from their own ignorance projects or causes pain, our ability to hold that pain doesn't shake us, doesn't cause us to recoil in fear or mistrust. Our trust isn't shaken by regardless of what people do. Because the moment is all we ever need. The truth is contained now. How can that be shaken? It is the truth. We can't be dislocated from that truth. We can't be misplaced. We can't forget it. Here's where we take a seat. Far from our abuse of history, far from our longing for joy, eons from the self-dislike, no longer having to reach towards metta. Metta has died. And the sun dawns. And that is all. Can we sit for a minute or two?
So there's a walking period now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.